Amen. All right. We're going to look at uh, Josiah tonight, and uh, I'm going to read the rest of uh, 33 because we, we left off at verse 21 there. And um, somebody asked, well, why aren't you going through all the kings? Because, because some of the kings, like Ammon, um, he's, you know, he, he served two years and they uh, assassinated him. So there's really not a whole lot there. So that's why we kind of skip over them and, and go to the next one. But um, you, can, you can follow along in your Bibles. <clears throat> I'll begin reading in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 21. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and that's after uh, his, his father Manasseh died. And he, he reigned two years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil, here we go again, in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. The only difference was Manasseh, what, at the end repented, remember, last week? Um, Amnon sacrificed all the images that Manasseh his father had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. And his servants, realizing what he was doing, conspired against him, verse 24, and put him to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. So we'll pick up in verse 30, or chapter 34, with King Josiah, the subject of our study tonight. Josiah was eight years old, young, uh, when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right uh, in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand <coughs> or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the ashram and the carved and metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals and in, in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them and he broke them into pieces. Uh, he broke into pieces the ashram and the carved and metal images and he made dust of them and he scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to him so you can tell he's a little ticked off verse 5 and he also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed judah and jerusalem and in the cities of manasseh ephraim simeon and as far as uh, naphtali in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now in the 18th year of his reign, verse 8, when he had cleansed the land and the house, that's how long it took apparently, uh, he sent uh, Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and uh, Maaseah, the, the governor of the city, and, and Joah, the son of uh, Jehaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And they came to Hokiah the high priest and gave him money that he that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and all the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin and from all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. So they actually used the money for what it was worth, or what it was given for, uh, unlike a lot of times 
our, our government, right? But verse 11, they gave it to the carpenters and built and to the builders to buy quarried stone and timbers for binders and uh, beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set uh, Jahath and Obadiah the Levites, the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam, and of the sons of the Kohathites, to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. Verse 14, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the the priest, this is interesting, found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. It kind of shows you how much disrespect they had for God and his word. Uh, The group that came before Josiah, they just kind of tossed it aside and they found it as they were cleaning the the temple out. And then Hilkiah answered and said to Japhon, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then uh, Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, uh, Ahikam, the son of uh, Shaphan, Abdon, the son of uh, Micah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Asaiah, the king's servant, (laughs) saying, Go, verse 21, inquire of the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because the fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that was written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tokath, son of Hazra keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that, uh, in, to, to that effect. Verse 23, and she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon the inhabitants, all the curses that are written in this book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Verse 26, but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender, this is important, and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard the words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. 
and they brought back word to the king. And then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Verse 31, And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Verse 32, Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. They had to join in the covenant. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. And so you can see the effect that this young man had on this entire nation. It's amazing. Um, chapter 35 it says, Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. And he said to the Levites, the people who were caretakers of the temple, who taught all of Israel and who were holy to the Lord, Put the holy ark in the house that Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, built. You need not carry it on your shoulders, nor serve the Lord your God. Uh, now serve the Lord your God uh, and his people Israel. Verse 4, prepare yourselves according to your father's houses by your divisions, as prescribed in the writing of David, the king of Israel, and the document of Solomon, his son, and stand in the holy place according to the, the groupings of the father's houses of your brothers and lay people, and according to the division of the Levites of the father's houses. So they had this all organized. And he says, slaughter a Passover lamb and consecrate yourselves and prepare for your brothers to do according to the word of the Lord by Moses. And then Josiah contributed to the lay people. He, he gave of his own offerings as a Passover offerings, all who were present, lambs and young goats, and from the flock to the number of 30,000 and 3,000 bulls. And these were from the king's possessions. And his officials contributed willingly to the people of the priests and to the Levites. Hokiah, Zechariah, Jehiel, uh, the, the, the chief officers of the house of God, gave to the priests of the Passover offerings 2,600 Passover lambs and 300 bulls. You can see how, how sacrificial these people were. Um, Kananiah also, and um, Shemaiah, and, and Nathaniel, his brothers, and Hashabiah, and Jael, and Josabad, the priests of the chiefs of the Levites, gave to the Levites for the Passover sufferings, offerings 5,000 lambs and young goats and 500 Bulls. And when the service had been prepared for, the priests stood in their place, and the Levites in their divisions, according to the king's command, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb, and the priests threw the blood that they received from them while the Levites flayed the sacrifices. Verse 12, And they set aside the burnt offerings that they might distribute them according to the groupings of the Father's house of the lay people, and to offer to the Lord as is written in the book of Moses. See, they were doing this, but they were sacrificing to idols and 
And even when they did this kind of sacrifice before, they wouldn't do it according to the law. They'd just make up their own, own deal, even though it was for the Lord. And that's why it keeps on saying they did it according to the, the book of Moses. And so they did with the bulls, and they roasted the Passover lamb with fire. Verse 13, according to the rule, and they boiled the holy offerings in pots and cauldrons and in pans and carried them quickly to all the lay people. And afterwards, they prepared for themselves and for the priests, because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were offering the burnt offerings and the fat parts until night. So this was a big, huge undertaking. So the Levites prepared for themselves and for the priests and the sons of Aaron, <coughs> and the singers, the sons of Asaph, were in the place according to the command of David and Asaph and Heman and uh, uh, Jeduthun, the king's seer, and the gatekeepers were at each gate. And they did not need to depart from their service, for their brothers, the Levites, prepared for them. So they were served because they were serving elsewhere. Verse 16, so all the service of the Lord was prepared that day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. And the people of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time in the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days. No Passover, this is important, verse 18, no Passover, Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. So it's been a while since they did anything like this. None of the kings of Israel had kept a Passover as was kept by Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of, of, of Josiah, this Passover was kept. And then uh, verse 20, after this, all of this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at uh, Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. In other words, King Josiah, I have nothing to do with you. Why are you sending this group out? And God has commanded me to hurry, cease opposing God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Verse 22. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him. So you could see whether he grew a little prideful or whatever. He didn't even consider asking the Lord anything about this. He just decided on his own. <coughs> and he says that he disguised himself in order to fight with him. And he did not listen to the words of, of Nico from the mouth of God. Now, this is a, a pagan ruler here, but God used him, which is interesting. But came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Uh, verse 25, Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah and all their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold... They are written in the laments. Now, the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds according to what <coughs> is written in the law of the Lord and his acts first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and uh, Judah. So you see this teenager who's a mere eight years old. He starts an incredible spiritual revival in his country. I mean, can you imagine? He's eight years old. And you wonder, I mean, his dad obviously uh, wasn't a saint 
okay? He had a lot of issues uh, to the point where they had to assassinate him. He was so bad. And um, in Manasseh, his grandfather, I guess it would be, right? Um, <coughs> he, he started out bad, but then he kind of turned around at the end. And there's a lesson there to say, you know what? I mean, a lot of times, you know, we all blow it in certain areas of our lives and, and we end up repenting and, and the Lord kind of puts everything back together, right? That doesn't mean there's not consequences. <laughs> it doesn't mean there's not consequences for our actions. And, and this is what we see here with um, Ammon and his reign. I mean, it was complete rebellion against everything. His father kind of turned, tried to turn uh, Judah around. You know, he got rid of all the, 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 tried to get rid of the pagan worship and everything, but it had gone too far at that point. And it wasn't until Josiah came on the, the, the scene that he was able, able to actually do something about it, but it took years. Uh, I remember reading a, port, a report from William Bennett, who used to be the, the, uh, education, the Secretary of Education. And uh, he said in the 1940s, <coughs> he gave a list of things that teachers had to deal with in classrooms. And he said this. He said their main issues, the major problems that they faced in schools in the 1940s by students were this, talking out of turn, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, cutting in line, dress code infractions, and littering. And he said the same, the same teachers, uh, or the same question was asked to teachers in the 1990s, early on, when he served. And they listed the problems they had on a daily basis with students as this, drug and alcohol abuse, Pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, and assault. And you look at that and you think, what in the world happened here? What went wrong? Um, it's kind of like the, you know, you, I don't know if you ever heard the little story about the little Dutch boy that tried to plug the hole in the dike, right? <laughs> With his finger, he put the, there's a, d a dike uh, leaking and he put his finger in it. I mean, sometimes uh, that's how you feel when you're trying to make change and, and for the good, especially in our, in our society, you know, you put one finger in and then you got to put another finger in and then something else is leaking. It's pretty soon you got all five fingers in, you're putting your toes in, your elbow, whatever. I mean, whatever you can do to stop this mayhem. And it's overwhelming at times. And uh, um, here is, is King Josiah. He must have felt that way, even at his young age when he took over. Somehow he, he understood the difference between right and wrong. Maybe he learned that from his grandfather. Probably didn't learn it from his dad. We don't know anything about his mom, but... Um, you know, he probably didn't want to end up like his dad. So some, somewhere he had some form of spiritual influence in his life. And um, I think that he, he saw his godless culture just hurling toward destruction. And he said, I, I, we got to do something here. All right. And he must have felt the same way. Like, where do I start? And, you know, it's not too far removed from what we see today. Right, with our own culture, with our own government. I mean, you look at it, and it's just like this giant mess. And it's like, how would you even fix this? And you have a lot of people say, oh, it can never be fixed. It's, America's over. You know, just, I don't know. Part of me believes that, and part of me doesn't. Could God turn things around here? He definitely could. And I think just like he did here. Uh, Josiah lived in a very evil day. His culture was on the, the, the brink of God's judgment, just like we are. His grandfather, Manasseh, had been the most 
wicked king in Judah's history, and yet he reigned the longest. And he plunged the nation into some of the worst sins, um, a lot worse than even the Canaanites, who were their, their enemies. Um, and so even though he repented, Manasseh repented, as we saw last week, he couldn't undo that damage that he inflicted on his society. And, you know, the point is this. It's much easier to lead people into sin than it is to lead them out of sin. Would you agree with that? I mean, once you get into sin, man, it's hard to be drawn away from that. And, and that's why it's so critical, especially with our young people, that we have some form of influence in a positive nature spiritually into their lives. And unfortunately, our culture has done everything possible to remove that. I mean, it's hard to believe in schools, they used to learn to read and, and uh, even write uh, by reading sections of Scripture. I mean, they, they, had, they would have to memorize sections of Scripture and write it out and, and learn how to read it. And now it's, you have this weird separation of church and state. Oh, you can't even take a Bible to class, all this craziness, okay? And, and that's their, their goal is to take God out of the picture. And so it, it kind of, I, I don't know if you had a, ever had a BB gun, when, when you're little, okay, I mean, we used to have BB guns and guns and stuff when we were growing up, but I remember I had this BB gun, and the, the BBs used to come in this round cylinder, you know, and you would take the lid off, and you'd carefully load them into, and I remember one time, I was in, I think it was in the living room, we had a hardwood floor, and I dumped all these BBs everywhere, and I thought, oh my, I mean, I was picking up BBs for the rest of the night, you know, I mean, weeks later, my sister, oh, yeah, you didn't get these BBs, you know, they're still showing up, you know, and it was so hard, and it's, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, once these BBs were out onto the floor, you can't just go, oh, here, come back. It, it doesn't work that way. It's easy to scatter them, but it's not easy to get them back into the, the container. And, and Josiah's father, Ammon, he, reigned, he only reigned two years before they took him out. He was so bad, they assassinated him. But what he do? He did, he undid everything that Manasseh squelched. I mean, you know, he, he did all this bad stuff Manasseh did, right? But then what'd he do? Uh, he, he repented at the end, so he, he started to kind of make a good influence there. And he, he wanted to uh, change things. But when his son took over, he basically reestablished all the pagan practices that his father, of his father's earlier years, he probably saw his father doing this stuff earlier when he was younger, and um, here we are, you know, this wicked culture is plunging head headlong into God's judgment. And this little eight-year-old boy, Josiah, they put him in there as king. And you almost wonder if they put him in there because they thought, hey, we can do what we want. Right? I mean, there's a lot of similarities that are going on, okay? I'm not going to get into it, but you can see. Um, and, and, you know, hey, we're just going to do what we want. And, and this boy king, what's he going to do, you know? Well, what did he do? He, he, he stuck all of his fingers in the dike, or at least he tried to, to stop the, the leak of immoral behavior among his people. Um, now, he didn't finally avert God's judgment. He didn't do that. And God told him as much. You're not going to, you know, this judgment's coming. But he did manage to hold it off for over 30 years. You know, and that's what the Bible says. I mean, eventually, all nations will turn on who? Will turn on Israel. When that happens, the game's over. You, know, you don't want to be on that side of the equation. 
and and there's a lot of people today that, as we've talked even on Sunday, believe in replacement theology. They say, well, Israel doesn't matter. The church replaced Israel. That's the beginning of that mess, right? If you don't think Israel matters, I mean, just look at the people that stand against Israel and look at where they're at culturally, okay? And you look at the countries that stand for Israel and where they're at economically and culturally. And so here at the age of 16, it says in verse 3 of chapter 34, Josiah began to seek the Lord. He began to seek the Lord. And then it says, as a man of a young man of 20, he started a series of reforms in an attempt to turn the nation back from destruction. And in verse 2, it says, even though Josiah himself did right in the sight of the Lord, um, if you read the, the contemporary prophets of Jeremiah and, and Zephaniah, you learn that his reforms weren't able to go deep enough. I mean, he did what he could. Uh, and he did manage to keep one generation from judgment, at least. So he did do good, but it couldn't thwart God's ultimate judgment. And so um, we should look at Josiah as an example to us how we should seek to... Here comes Kai. No, <laughs> uh, just kidding. <laughs> He's late. <laughs> uh, Josiah should be an example to us how to... How to uh, as we seek to make a difference, okay, in our society, in our, even, in our evil culture, that there's a possibility there that that can happen. And, and just like Josiah, I put there a little phrase, though we live in an evil day, we can see God work through us if we seek him and we obey his word. Those are the two, king, two things, if we seek him and we obey his word. And the first point here, Josiah lived in an evil day, and guess what? So do we. We're no different. I mean, it's a different age, right? But it's no different. And when you read there verses 3 to 7 in the parallel passage over in 2 Kings chapter 23 that goes along with this, you begin to see what Josiah was up against. I mean, it, this was not an easy job. And although the people in his kingdom would, would claim to be followers of the one true God, that's what they were claiming, they had incorporated all kinds of, of worldly practices of, of pagan idol worship, of sexual immorality, even uh, as we saw uh, last week, child sacrifice, all under the guise of religion. You know, uh, some were even saying they worshiped the true God. Uh, it's amazing how people can delve into anything and everything under, uh, in God's name, instead of the word of God. They don't want to know what God wants to say. They want to do their own thing, and they do it in the name of their God, but they don't want to hold themselves captive to the word of God. And these people claim to be God's covenant people, but they were totally corrupt in every way in their lifestyle. And in Josiah's day, just like ours today, there was a widespread misunderstanding and lack of understanding of God's word because it wasn't being taught. I mean, we found that out, right? They found the book of the law. It was thrown in a corner somewhere. They didn't even know what it was until they dusted it off. And when we read a, a copy of the law being discovered in the temple, and then finally somebody, hey, king, we've got to read this to you. And uh, we get the distinct impression at that point that, that even the godly king Josiah had never heard this read to him before. It kind of has an indication this is, this is brand new stuff. We don't know whether Manasseh or, or Ammon had destroyed or tried to destroy the copies of this because they were 
even Manasseh at one point was totally anti-God. I mean, he was in all this pagan worship. And so maybe he looked at the priest and the Levites and said, hey, give me the copies of everything. We're going to burn them or we're going to dump them somewhere. Um, and they, they, couldn't, they couldn't find them. But apparently, from what we read, that God's word was scarce. It wasn't being studied. It wasn't being read. And, you know, it's very clear. When, whenever you see in a culture people who do not read and do not understand what the word of God says, they have no basis for evaluating or confronting um, their own behavior. There's no standard anymore. And that's where we're at today. Uh, and so they, they drift, unfortunately, into the worst sins possible without even knowing, and this goes even for religious people, that some of their practices are thoroughly pagan. They don't get it. Um, there's a book... Um, written by David Wells, is called No Place for Truth and God in the Wasteland. And um, he argues basically through this book that the church is in the business of truth, or it should be in the business of truth, not the business of marketing. Um, we shouldn't have to market a feel-good product to religious consumers. But you look around and that's what you have today. Uh, and he says this, a business is in the market simply to sell its products. It doesn't ask consumers to surrender themselves to the product. The church, on the other hand, does, uh, does call for such a surrender. It is not merely marketing a product. It is declaring Christ's sovereignty over all of life and declaring the necessity of obedient submission to him and to the truth of his word. That's the difference. We're not here just to market the church. The major problem with American Christianity is that we don't want to submit to authority in our hearts, including the authority of Scripture, by the way. Why? Because it confronts our own self-centeredness. It confronts our own sinfulness. Uh, we want to fulfill our own you know needs today we're all we're all about ourselves we want our own self-interest met you know what can jesus do for me then maybe i will follow him uh, that's the mentality today and so that's why you have churches pushing and marketing that kind of um idea of christ jesus just just come to jesus he'll make your marriage better he'll make your have you more money you'll have a nicer house you'll have a better job and, and, and so people are saying, well, yeah, okay, I'll just add Jesus to my lifestyle. And then this guy says that I'll get all this stuff, you know. Um, and, and that's just not the way Jesus works. And so we're really abandoning the historical grammatical context approach to understanding what the Bible says and accepting Men's are authors. Somebody writes some book somewhere that's on the top ten or something. Uh, instead, that's usually filled with all the psychological babble from from secular works, you know. And uh, they they tell you how to raise your children. They tell you how to do this. How you you know everything from losing weight to raising your children to having a happy marriage. But it's all secular garbage, basically. It's all psychological stuff that they put in there insights they claim that are quote biblical and they the american christian 
Christianity has really abandoned the idea that we have to submit to God's revealed absolute truth, and we've moved it more into a subjective, kind of a therapeutic hodgepodge of worldly ideas. It's like, well, you know, you can go to church and get some good ideas for, for all these things, but, you know, you don't really have to follow God's word. I mean, that's kind of old-fashioned. But even though, like Josiah, we live in an evil day, which we do, uh, when even those who claim to be God's people are marked by worldliness. I guarantee you we all are tainted by worldliness, even here tonight. We all have some area of our life that, that is given over to that. Um, there is a way out of that darkness, and that's what we want to talk about, and it involves seeking the Lord and obeying his word. And so even though Josiah lived in an evil day, you know what? So do we. Secondly, Josiah sought the Lord and obeyed his word. And guess what? So can we. Yeah, it's not the most politically correct thing to do. Yeah, it's, it may not win friends and influence people in your own life. But you know what? You'll be doing what's right before the Lord. And so the first point there is Josiah sought the Lord. He says that in, in verse 3 of 34. He says, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. This means for eight years he was trying something. He was trying to do what's right, but it kind of gives the indication that he was trying it on his own. His intent of his heart was good. But then finally he, he must have come to the end of himself and realized, well, I don't have any more fingers to put in the dike. I'm, I'm out of, I'm out of uh, answers here, God. Help me. And it says that he began to seek the Lord. And there's two lessons here. Seek the Lord early in life if you can. You know, that's why... You know, it's so important to, to have a, a Sunday school. It's so important to have some kind of ministry to young people. Uh, Josiah was 16 when he began seeking the Lord, basically. And he was not from a godly home, obviously. His dad was horrible. He lived in an evil day. And yet he began seeking the Lord during his teen years, which I find very interesting. And he never turned away. You know, I think the church has really been sold a, a pack of goods when people, even in the church, they think, well, you know, teenagers, they have to go through that phase of rebellion. All teenagers are supposed to rebel or you're not a teenager, right? I mean, I kind of believe that as a youth pastor because I worked with teenagers, right? But, but to be honest with you, that's not true. That's just not true. Your teenager, it's almost like the world puts the standard out, well, unless they go, rebe go through rebellion, they're not really an adult. You know, they got to have those stories. No, you know what? You can grow up in a Christian home, become a Christian at a young age, live a moral life, you know, and, and get married and have a wonderful family and never go down that rebellion stage. That's perfectly reasonable. But we think the normal is just, oh, this is just what's normal all the time. Uh, and so, you know, here, you know, we just, we, we sometimes we, we want to, you know, stop that, that mentality in its tracks. Because it, it comes from the world. I mean, that, that, that mentality comes from the world. And really, unfortunately, in a lot of parents' families, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and, and Christian parents are waiting for their teens to rebel. You know, they're just, they're waiting, wow, I know the rebellious years are coming, we're getting ready, you know. And uh, some kids feel like they're never very well adjusted if they don't show... Uh, sow some kind of wild oats somewhere along, along the way. And, that, and that's baloney. That's, that's not from the Lord. 
And, you know, every young person should understand that, you know what, if you come from a bad home, even if you live in an evil world, in a horrible society, you can still seek the Lord. You can be the agent of change in your family. And I've seen that happen. You know, we used to have a bus ministry and we'd go to Hayward and Union City and all those places and pick up these kids and bring them to church. And, you know, most of the kids, you look at them today and you go, wow, I don't know what happened to them. But, I mean, they came to church, but it had a little effect on their life. But you know what? There's a couple. There's probably a handful that I can honestly say, man, that had an impact on that kid. And not just on him, on his whole family or her family. And it's just, it's a wonderful thing to, to see that when it happens. And I thank God that he graciously uh, even preserved my own, own, even though I wasn't a believer. Growing up in the Catholic Church and things, I wasn't, I wasn't a Christian, a believing Christian. I was a Catholic. But you know what? I thank God for those days. At least it kept me on somewhat of a narrow path. Did I do some wrong things? Sure. But at the same time, I didn't have open rebellion in my heart against God ever. I could never remember having that. And, um, you know, it's by his grace, obviously. And so when God's grace is involved in it, I think that you can, you can really see God, God work. And so I would say, you know, uh, seek the Lord in, you know, when you're young and, and, and keep seeking. And that's the second point there, right? Keep on seeking the Lord. It, notice it says he began to seek the Lord. And that indicates that it was a continuous thing. He, he began doing it with with continuity. Seeking the Lord is what? It's a, it's a lifelong process. You know, you don't get saved when you're in fifth grade and then, you know, you don't have to do anything in church the rest of your life, but you're going to have it. No, it doesn't work that way. That's, that's another lie that we're sold. You know, you raised a hand, you said the sinner's prayer, you did all this stuff. Well, you must be a Christian. Well, that doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is what? Jesus says, you know what? If you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments, Right? You'll, you'll love me with all your heart, your soul, your mind. You'll, you'll, you'll love your neighbor um, as yourself. So it's important that we, we understand that. And so we've we got to keep on doing this. It's a, it's a lifelong process. You don't just try it half-heartedly for a couple months and say, ah, it didn't work. I, I'll try something else. You know, if that's the case, you're not a believer. You're not. You're just not, you're not there. Because walking with the infinite God and learning his ways is a life long lifetime process it never stops you never arrive you'll go through dry times spiritually you'll think your your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling <clears throat> you'll read scripture and it won't it won't mean anything to you okay you're going to go through those times um, you're going to go through difficult times you're going to be tempted to turn to the world for the latest wisdom on how to deal with your problems and i'm just here to tell you don't don't go down that road I mean, the Bible is very clear. It says, hey, I've given you everything you need right here. You know, so, so be focused on that. Uh, what you need is the Lord. Let your problems drive you um, to depend on him and on him alone. You'll be much further along. Seek him through his word. Trust in him. Don't lean on any other source. And that's what the Bible refers to as the renewing of our minds through scripture. It isn't a a quick fix. It's something that's a lifelong process. You've got to run. The Bible says you run with endurance. The race, what? Set before us. It's not a sprint. And so with Josiah, we must keep seeking the Lord. And then the second thing here is Josiah in verse 2 obeyed God's word. 
it summarizes his, his entire life basically in verse 2 there, verse of chapter 34. It says, and he, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Uh, there's a big difference, is there not, between um, doing what is right in the sight of people and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Big difference. I mean, if you don't understand that difference, then you need to read some scriptures because it's very clear. Uh, we can only do right in the sight of the Lord when we what? When we know what the Lord wants us to do. So we have to obey his word. And the only way we can obey his word is if we what? Study and read his word. It's just so important. Um, and I'm sure Josiah in his young life had many opportunities to turn aside to the left or the right. I mean, he was a king. He could have snapped his fingers and had a room full of women waiting for him at any time, okay, uh, if he was tempted in that area. So, I mean, I'm sure that there was opportunities for him to do it, but he didn't do that. Now, at the end of his life, he made a decision to go after a king and, and fight with the king, and he didn't seek the Lord, and he paid the consequences. But for the most part, he obeyed God's word. And the story here, when he discovers the copy of the law, when they discovered the copy of, of the law of Moses, uh, most commentators say that was probably at least the book of Deuteronomy, but it could have been the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. So how much of the word they actually had there, we don't know. But it's, it's a marvelous example to me of how God preserves his word. Think about it. This book has been under attack since its inception. <laughs> Right? The Word of God. I mean, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That's what Satan did, right? Oh, God didn't really say this. And, and it's been under attack ever since. Tyrants have tried to eradicate it. Uh, even clergymen have, have tried to keep it from the common people, thinking that, oh, if they had a copy of God's Word, they would, that would lead them into, you know, they, they couldn't understand it, and they would come up with uh, heretical teaching. Uh, during the Middle Ages, uh, the church authorities opposed the translation of the Bible. You weren't allowed to have a copy of the Bible in your own language. That was just for the religious people to read uh, because they feared that heresy would result. It was William Tyndale, one of the earliest translators of the Bible into English, who was condemned for heresy. I mean, you think, why would they want to keep God's word from the people? Because there's power in God's word. That's why. That's why. And he was condemned to heresy. He was uh, strangled, and then he was burned at the stake in 1536 on account of all his efforts to simply bring the word of God to the common people. A letter he wrote from his prison, when he was in prison, he requested a Hebrew Bible, grammar, and a dictionary so he could continue his translation even while he was being <laughs> punished for all his translations. He continued to do it. And you know what? We take for granted when we go into our library, we go into our room, and we see three or four copies of the God's Word on the table or on the bookshelves. And maybe we pull one down once in a while and peruse through it casually. We, we take it for granted that we have several translations of the Bible lying around our house or our office. But it, it, it wasn't always so. That's why when we read the Bible, it should be something that we're thankful for, that we have, a, we have a copy not only of this text of Scripture, but we have it broken down in a systematic fashion. In the original language, there wasn't the numbers of the verses and the chapters and, and all the stuff at the beginning and all the notes and the study. None of that was there. It was just, you know, 
one sentence into another, basically, would have made it very difficult to study. But I mean, we have cross-references, we have computers, we have all this stuff. And yet, even with all that stuff, we don't make much of an effort to read and study God's Word on our own. Yeah, we come to church, we listen to a message, we come to a Bible study, but on our own, are we diligently reading God's Word so we can understand it, so we can obey it? But whenever God's Word is read and obeyed, always great changes begin to take place. First of all, in individuals, and then also in societies. You see that throughout Scripture. But if you just own a bunch of Bibles and you don't read them, it's not going to do you any good. You, know, you can't take a Bible, unfortunately. I, I wish sometimes this were true. You take your Bible and put it under your pillow and you'd wake up the next morning and, and it would just all be in there, you know. Uh, you know, I'm waiting for the day when they have a, UPS or a USB reader or something. You just plug it into your neck and it all goes in your brain or something. That'd be wonderful. Be quick, right? But that's not how it works. All right? You have to read the Word. You can't obey it if you don't know what it says. Um, and we don't just want to read a few of our favorite sections which reinforce our own prejudices of understanding of Scripture. We have to read it all. That's why early on in my ministry I decided to teach through, for the most part, books of the Bible. That way I'm not up on my hobby horse teaching on finance or teaching on family or teaching on whatever, uh, something I want to teach on. I've got to go through books of the Bible. So you go through the book of, of 1 Thessalonians, you've got to deal with some hard issues. You go through the book of 1 Corinthians, you've got to deal with some hard issues. I mean, I, I've seen uh, just in my research where some of the hard issues, a lot of times the, the, the verses in... Uh, in Corinthians, the chapters that deal with the spiritual gifts, tongues, and all that stuff. You can see online, you know, you'll, you'll have, a, you'll, you'll go through the church's se- uh, sermons, and you'll see it. They go up to chapter 13, and then all of a sudden, it ends. They, they, they end the series there. Or they'll pick up and, you know, uh, a chapter down the road. They bypass all that. Why? Because it's kind of controversial when you talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. But you have to read it first if you're going to understand it. Uh, and we don't know what portions of the law Hilkiah read. Maybe he read all of it. I don't know. But I guess that he probably would have read from Deuteronomy 28, which spells out a lot of the grave consequences for disobedience for the nation. And so Josiah heard that and said, man, we've got to make some changes. I don't want this to happen to my people. And that's what he did. Secondly, he, you have to respond to the word. You can't just read the word. You have to respond to it. You have to obey it. And what was his response? when Josiah heard the words of, of, of God's judgment and, and God's word, it, it says that he tore his clothes in, in, in horror. Um, now, we don't need to tear our clothes, but sometimes the word of God should touch our hearts. It, it should cause our hearts to tear a little bit, you might say. And when Josiah heard the word of God, basically, paraphrase of verse 21 there is, you know what, we're in a heap of trouble. We got a lot of problems going on here, and we need we need to do some fixing, and we need to do it rather quickly. And even though Josiah's trans his reforms to purge the land of idolatry, it, it preceded the discovery of the law. This was before he was trying to do this before the law was even discovered. There, um, what he did illustrates what ought to take place when a person gets into God's word. It exposes things in our hearts, and it should bring us back to a baseline. It should show us what's displeasing in our lives to God because there's always something displeasing in our lives to God. 
And then you have to take strong action against those things. Don't allow your, your, your heart and your, your, your mind, you know, you ever read a scripture and you just get convicted over it, you know, and you start to make a little change and then you just kind of forget about it and you move on. God doesn't want us to do that. He, he wants us to, to really grab a hold of that and, and allow that change to be ongoing. Um, and that's what he did in verses 4 and 5. I mean, when he began to understand what God didn't like, it says that he took all these things, he chopped them down, he broke them into pieces, and he ground them into powder, burnt it, scattered the ashes. I mean, he made a statement beyond a statement. And that's what Jesus was saying, if you think about it, in Matthew chapter 5, when he was dealing with, with folks, he said, you know what? Um, if your eye causes you to lust, what did he say? Tear it out. If your right hand can't stop stealing, cut it off. And you're thinking, whoa, wait a minute, does he really mean pry somebody's eye out? No, I don't think he's saying that. But I think that he is saying, you know what? We have to go to great extent to defeat sin. And, and I've talked to a lot of men in my years of ministry, and some of them have issues in the area of pornography and everything, and you get right down to it, and they can't control it. And, and I tell them, you know what? Get rid of your internet. I don't know what else to tell you. Get rid of the internet. That's where this happens, by their own admission. Well, I couldn't do that. <laughs> you know what? You're not willing to cut your hand off. You're not willing to guide your eye. You're not willing to do what Jesus says you have to do. Well, how am I supposed to live? I don't know. But you'll figure something out. But at least you won't be in sin. You know? And it's not that just that, because there's a lot of other ways you can sin in that area as well, right? So, but it, it's, the point is well taken. And we have to be willing to do whatever we have to do to respond to God's word by dealing radically with our sin. Thirdly, we have to learn from uh, the word of God. Uh, you have to learn it from mature believers. And the king, in his wisdom, this young man, he said, you know what? Okay, you read this to me. I feel some conviction, but I don't really understand what it says. Uh, how does this apply to me, first of all? And how does this apply to my subjects, to my kingdom? I want to know, as a king, who wants to do what's right before the Lord, who's seeking the Lord. I don't really get what you read to me, I mean, but I feel the conviction. And so what did he do? He sent a delegation out to Holda, the prophetess. Apparently, his contemporaries, Jeremiah and Zechariah, weren't around. He would have went to them, all right? But he went to this, this woman, this prophetess. And uh, while God prefers, I believe, in the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, you see this preferably, he, he, and this isn't a sexist thing, it's just the way God works, he prefers to use men in positions of spiritual leadership. You know, you can, you can go through the, the reasons why, but this is God's choice. Okay, that doesn't make women less spiritual, it doesn't make women less useful to God, but there's certain roles that God says, you know what, this role is for a man. Usually that's the role of prophet. But with that being said, when they're not available, he will use women. Judges 5 is a good example. All right, clearly a woman like Huldah is an exception in Scripture. It's not the rule. And what happens is you have a lot of churches today that are saying, oh, we believe in women pastors, we believe in women elders, and they're using texts like this to prove it, and it, it, it doesn't make any sense, because that's not a rule. That's not a, this is an exception to the rule. And so you have to be careful with that. Can God use women? Yes. Did God use women? Throughout Scripture, completely. 
But there's certain roles that are reserved for men, and there's certain roles, by the way, that are, are reserved for women. But here, God does use this godly, faithful woman, Huldah, and she, verse 23, she basically shoots straight by telling the messengers what the Lord said. She didn't, she didn't cower. She didn't say, well, this king's asking me, and I'm a woman. I mean, I want to make sure he, he likes my, he, my answer. She didn't care. She was going to speak the truth because she was a godly woman. And if that hurt their feelings, so be it. And the job of a person teaching or preaching God's word is to make the truth of God as plain as they can with the understanding of what God is saying. And you know what? Sometimes that steps on people's toes. And so there's a, there's a natural inclination to say, oh, I can't really say that because so, I know so-and-so is going to be offended and, and I'm just going to kind of pull back a little bit. I'm going to make it a little more comfortable. And that's when you start to compromise. It's not that you want to offend people. That's not the goal of any pastor, I wouldn't think. Um, but you have to make the word of God plain, and sometimes it does step on people's toes. The word of God doesn't always make you feel warm and fuzzy. It doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy. I think sometimes people forget that before I preach a message, you study the message, right? You're, you're, God's doing a work in your heart first. So I've already beat up and beat up by God the whole week before the message. So I completely get sometimes on a Sunday you walk out going, wow, that was kind of just, man, that's convicting. That's, you know, man, he's talking to me. No, I'm not. God is. The big difference, okay, because maybe you don't come out of the, the service feeling warm and fuzzy, all right, but what it did, it confronts your sin. It, it speaks of God's judgment as well as his love and mercy. It has to be a balanced approach. But the word of God always brings healing if we're willing to, first of all, submit to it and we're willing to obey it. It will always bring healing. And so as a hearer of the word, scripture warns you against, uh, today people shop for teachers. They want, they want teachers who look good and sound good and, and kind of tickle their ears and tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to hear. All right, there's people doing that all the time. Um, I've read books on church growth that tell pastors, if you want to build your church, if you want your church to grow, don't preach with authority and don't confront sin. That's God's job. You know, people don't like to be confronted with those kind of things. If you do that, you're going to run them out of your church. You won't have a big church. Um, and you can find a lot of churches that take that approach. They take a marketing approach. Uh, I've even had pastors tell me, well, we don't, we would never sing, you know, there's power in the blood. I mean, that's offensive to people. That's an offensive song. You know, we don't, we don't use words like sin or, you know, they call it mistakes or, I, you know, they're always coddling people. That's not what people want to hear. They want to hear the truth. I really believe this. And, you know, you have to do it in a gracious way, but people want to hear the truth. And um, you have to read the word, respond to the word, learn it from others. But then fourthly here, you have to seek, the, seek to influence others with the, with the word. 
You have to seek to influence others with the word. You can do all the, the three above. You can, you can read the word, respond to the word, and learn the word from mature believers. But if you're not involved in, in influencing others with the word, you're missing part of the equation here, a big part of it. Once you've read the word and responded to it with personal obedience, and you've been taught it by others, you have an obligation. You're going to be held account when you meet the Lord, what did you do with what was given to you? And I really believe that has to do with teaching. It has to do with your giftedness. It has to do with your time, your talent, your treasure, the whole thing. You're going to be held account for that. And Josiah did not keep it to himself. He could have heard the word of God read to him, and he could have said, wow, that's really convicting. I can get my life straight. And, you know, you hear this all the time, but I'm not going to go out and tell others because I'm in no place to do that. He, could, he was a young kid. But he didn't do that. He chose to share God's truth with others. And I'm sure that it, 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 he had some blowback. Clearly he did. Um, he got everybody together. He read the word of God to them. And then he sought to help them to obey it. It tells us that in verses 29 to 33. That's basically what he did. And if God's work is real in your life, you're going to want to bring others along. You wanna, you're you're going to want to influence others for the cause of Christ. It's not going to have to be a have-to thing. You're going to want to do it because you know it's real change. You know it's, it's the only way that you could you can affect change in somebody's life is by sharing Christ, by sharing the word of God with them. And, and some people, I hear it all the time, you know, well, I don't want to offend somebody by telling them what the Bible says. You ever heard that? I hear that all the time. I mean, if you saw someone with an illness and you've been cured of that same illness by taking a certain remedy, what kind of person would you be if you just said, well, I don't want to tell them what to do, I'll just let them die of the illness, even though I have the cure right here. It's worked for me. Uh, that, that wouldn't be a gracious thing to do. Uh, that would be really an offensive thing to do. And God's word gives us all that we need for life and godliness. It tells us that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so we need to understand that people with problems don't need human wisdom. They don't need that. They don't need psychology. They don't need counseling. They don't need all this stuff that the world is trying to thrust upon them from a secular standpoint. What do they need? They need God and they need his word. That's what they need. Every Christian should grow in being equipped with the word so that they can help others discover its riches. And so, just like it was Josiah who lived in an evil day, he sought the Lord, he obeyed the Lord, and so can we. What's the result? Verse, uh, the third point here, God worked through Josiah. And guess what? He can work through us. I don't care where you're at in your spiritual journey. He can work through you. He can work through me. Uh, Josiah purged the land of idolatry. He purged the land of immorality. He restored the temple. He reestablished worship in all of its proper place in the right order according to God's word. He didn't cut corners. He led the people in the greatest Passover in hundreds of years. This young boy did. Josiah's Passover was greater than the one that was led even by Hezekiah. And you say, well, why is that? Because all of Israel participated in this Passover. And because it was observed according to the law of, of, of God's word of the Mosaic Law. 
He saved a complete generation from God's judgment. Put it off 30-some years. And you know what? In our evil day, we can do great things. God can do great things through us if we just seek Him and obey His Word. That's all we have to do. We don't have to come up with some formula. And even though it seems impossible to see our nation restored, I believe, to its place where school teachers are complaining about kids chewing gum instead of killing each other, um, God can do the impossible. And we have to believe that. We have to believe that we need a spiritual revival. And you know what? In the end, Josiah's story kind of ends on a sad note because he didn't really follow through in all this stuff. Uh, he didn't listen to this, this Pharaoh, Nika, who passed through Judah on its way to confront this other ruler. And uh, he didn't listen. And he intended uh, to fight this guy. He was insistent on it. And maybe he thought because he was a king and it was his responsibility, whatever the reason, it, it's very ironic that he didn't seek the Lord in any of this. Nowhere do we read that Josiah sought the Lord whether to go to battle with this guy or not. In fact, he actually disguises himself before going into battle. What a cowardice act. Think about it. I mean, before, I mean, it, it kind of reminds us of the ploy used by wicked Ahab, right? I mean, why disguise yourself if you're doing what God wants you to do? If you're in the will of God, who cares? Right? God will watch out for you. That's what I never understood when, when, when people have kind of a, a bait-and-switch mentality. You know, kind of like, well, we've got to have something at church to, so we can invite people. And then, you know, oh, we're going to have a big barbecue. Okay, well, we don't sell them. We don't tell them at the end of the barbecue somebody's going to get up and preach the gospel to them. You know, you do this bait-and-switch. No, we're just going to have a barbecue. And then you have a room full of believers, and they're all offended and, and never come back. They feel like they're ripped off. You know, people want honesty. And there's nothing wrong. We have to be bold in our faith. We have to believe that God can affect change in people's lives. We don't have to disguise ourselves. We don't have to cower in fear. If you're speaking the word of God, you're speaking truth. And there's power in that truth. But what does Josiah do? He goes out against Egypt. He gets shot in battle. He dies at 39. And guess what? The revival stops. It's over. In a few short years, Judah falls to Babylon. And what that says to me is basically, don't get sidetracked from what God has called you to do. Don't get sidetracked. It's very easy to do. The good is often the worst enemy of the best. And we fail to forget that. Um, we tend to forget that. The good is often the worst enemy of the best. In other words, we think, well, we're doing this, and that's about all. No, God has something better for you if you just obey him. And we have to be careful, or the devil will entice us to get in the wrong arenas at the wrong time and nullify any eternal impact of what God has called us to do. And Josiah, unfortunately, got sidetracked. He got sidetracked from the spiritual work. And what, what was the sidetrack? I think it was political. He, he looked at political solutions. He was thinking, hey, you know what? I've got to protect my people politically. I've got to defend this thing. And even though this guy's not coming against me, he could. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to fight against him. I'm not going to ask the Lord nothing. He wasn't a threat to Josiah. The guy said so much. But he went out and did it anyway. And he's probably rationalizing, well, isn't that the king's job? 
but he should have sought the Lord. And in this case, God really was speaking in verse 22 through this, of chapter 20, 35, through this pagan Pharaoh. This guy wasn't even a believer. He wasn't a, a follower of the God of Israel. God sometimes speaks through some interesting people. And we need to be aware of that. Josiah should have stuck to his spiritual reforms. Um, I remember right before the 1984 election hearing a well-known pastor say this. And even when I heard this, I thought, eh, that's kind of questionable. Um, he said, the second most important day of your life, this was his, his sermon before the election, and he said, the most important day of your life was when you trusted Christ as your Savior. But the second most important day of your life is when you vote for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> now, I'm a big Ronald Reagan fan, okay? I mean, but, you know, wow, wait a minute. You're really thinking that way? And there's people that are saying that same thing today in the area of politics. And uh, he was putting more faith in the political system than is warranted. Um, you know, I have no, uh, I'm very not, I'm, I'm not very optimistic, let's say it this way, that the Democrats or the Republican Party can solve Americans' problems. I just don't think they can do it. Only God can solve our problems. And he will do it as his people turn from their sin and seek him and obey his word, just like in the days of Josiah. Because the world's problems are essentially spiritual. They're not political. If you believe that, you're believing a lie. And the church's primary task is to what? Is to proclaim the gospel and to bring people under the lordship of Christ. That's what we're called to do. We're not to get sidetracked. It's not that we're not involved politically as individuals. We have political views. We go do our voting. We do all that. That's important. I'm not saying that we should just take a, you know, uh, a, a side road and not involved in any of that. We, we have to be involved. I think it's our, our, our duty to be involved. But at the same time, we don't want to put too much trust in that. We want to trust God. We want to trust Christ to do a work through us. And so we don't want to get sidetracked away from our main mission. Um, I read this this week, and I thought it closed with this. At the age of 12, Robert Louis Stevenson was looking out into the dark from his upstairs window. And he was watching a man light the street lanterns down on the street below. And his governess came into the room and asked, what are you doing? And he replied this, he said, I am watching a man cut holes in the darkness. Isn't that neat? Cut holes in the darkness. And we live in a dark day, right? But you know what? We can be used of God. I really believe that when we take God at his word and we seek him and we obey his word, we can be used by God to cut holes in the darkness if we'll simply seek him and obey his word and do what he calls us to do. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Josiah, Lord. What an incredible thing that you used this young boy uh, in ways that I'm sure he never imagined. 
I'm sure his contemporaries never imagined. But Lord, you did because he was obedient to you. And Father, we all come from different spiritual backgrounds. We all have different, uh, have different levels of spiritual maturity here today, but none of that really matters. What matters is, are, are we going to read your word? Are we going to study your word? Are we going to relate it to others? Are we going to be obedient to your call upon our life? Not just as a church, but even as an individual. Maybe there's people in our neighborhood. Maybe there's people in our family. Maybe there's people at our workplace that have yet to hear about Christ. And it's one thing to go and say, well, I'm just going to live for Jesus. I can't really say anything. But it's another thing to say, you know what? No, I'm going to ask God for opportunities to, to share his truth with my coworkers, with my friends, with my um, students at school, whoever it might be. And do it in a wise way and do it in a way that's led by God. And, and you will see incredible results because you're being obedient to what God is calling you to do. And Lord, we pray for opportunities like that, that we can share your words, share your truth, and then see the results lived out before us as they, these people come to Christ and are transformed by your power and desire to know more and learn more. Lord, we, we, we long for that. We know that's the only way this nation can be fixed is one heart at a time one soul at a time. And Father, we pray that our churches would stand up and do the right thing and begin to get back to teaching and preaching the Word of God in a way that's unapologetic. And Lord, if it steps on some toes, it steps on some toes. But Lord, we know that there's power in your Word, and we thank you for that. And so we pray tonight that you dismiss us with your blessing. pray that you just bless our discussion. Now we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.